Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are going to return to the story of Bayard Rustin. This is a man who spent 28 months staring in after World War II as one of the many conscientious objectors in federal prison. After his release, he was part of the Journey of Reconciliation, and that was a project to test a Supreme Court ruling that found the segregation of interstate buses un- unconstitutional. He also spent four months after the war in India studying Gandhian nonviolence and speaking on nonviolence. The world changed a lot during these years. As had happened after World War I, black service members returned home and were dismayed to find that in spite of having served their country in a time of war, they were still facing discrimination at home. This galvanized the civil rights movement. Nuclear weapons had changed the tone of the peace movement, and communism was increasingly seen as a very serious threat. All of this change had a huge, profound effect on Bayard Rustin's life and work, which is what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. And if you have not heard part one, parts of this one are going to make a lot more sense with with that context. I tried to make it an episode that would also stand alone, but like there is only so much we can re-explain without making this episode twice as long. Uh, and as was the case uh, in part one, there is a little more talk by necessity of Bayard Rustin's sex life than might be typical of our show. Because of his previous ties to the Communist Party, his race, and his sexual orientation, the McCarthy era was extremely dangerous for Bayard Rustin. This was one of the many reasons why he started to look beyond the United States in terms of his activism in the 1950s. In 1952, he toured North and West Africa, spending his time in Ghana, then known as the Gold Coast, and Nigeria. During his time in Africa, he met with activists who were resisting the British colonial government there. He bookended his time in Africa with stops in London, where he met with pacifist and civil rights activists about how to encourage nonviolence independence movements among Britain's African colonies. He had originally planned to do similar work in French colonies, but he had been previously part of protests at the French embassy in Washington, D.C., and consequently, the French government would not grant him a a visa to do this work. Whoops. Uh, Once he got back to the U.S., he set out on a speaking tour, and he started trying to work out funding to go back to Africa and make a more coordinated effort to encouraging nonviolent independence movements. But as had happened while he was trying to integrate a federal prison while serving time there as a conscientious objector, his efforts were derailed following a sexual encounter. In January of 1953, he and two other men were caught in the backseat of a car in Pasadena, California. All three were arrested on charges of lewd vagrancy and ultimately sentenced to 60 days in prison. This was really the last straw in Bayard Rustin's working relationship with pacifist A.J. Musty and his organization, the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Musty had been sorely, sorely disappointed by Bayard Rustin's sexual misconduct charge while in prison, after which uh, Bayard had assured him that his sexual orientation would not be an obstacle to his ongoing work. That made this whole incident in Pasadena, uh, from A.J. Musty's point of view, a huge betrayal on top of the fact that once again, Bayard's sex life had derailed his work. 
Byard resigned from the Fellowship of Reconciliation as a result. This was a hugely pivotal event in Rustin's life. He had been in prison multiple times before, but this was the first time that it was because of something unrelated to civil disobedience or being a conscientious objector. Since the sexual misconduct investigation had happened while he was in federal prison, knowledge of what had happened had been mostly confined to the conscientious objector community. But now he was a convicted sex offender, and homosexual behavior carried an enormous stigma. The Fellowship of Reconciliation also publicized his resignation among its members, so it became common knowledge in the pacifist community, and from there, the other social movements that Bayard Rustin had been part of. The prevailing wisdom at the time was that this uh, being essentially fired from the Fellowship of Reconciliation wasn't because Rustin was gay. Uh, it was because he was flagrant and promiscuous about it. A.J. Musty maintained that somebody caught in a heterosexual encounter in a public place and then sent to jail over it would have faced the same consequences. Rustin went from being a sought-after voice in the anti-war and civil rights movements and someone who really had the potential to become an international leader in nonviolent resistance to being someone who could really only work behind the scenes. When he was released from prison, he was depressed, and he felt desperately alone since many of his friends seemed to have abandoned him. He came to the conclusion that he was arrogant, that it had been selfish of him to follow his libido when he had other important work to do. When he got back to New York, he entered therapy to try to get back on his feet and to try to figure out how to exist as a gay man without sabotaging his work again. Out of work and with little left to live on and with a sex offense conviction as an obstacle to finding employment, he spent several months trying to figure out what to do. It was the fall of 1953 before he found another opportunity, which was the War Resisters League. Like the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the War Resisters League was an anti-war organization. But unlike the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which uh, most of its members were clergy, most members of the War Resisters League were secular. Rustin was already actually involved with this organization. He served on its board, which he had actually offered to resign from after his arrest in Pasadena. The board had de- had declined his offer to resign. The War Resisters League was, at that point, struggling. And the hope was that hiring Rustin as its program director would help them build connections with other pacifists. The decision to bring him on was far from unanimous. And A.J. Musty, who was on the War Resisters League board, resigned after it was made in protest. Although he returned after his retirement from the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And the two men eventually made at least some amends. Uh, Rustin would work with the organization for more than a decade. This return to the world of of activism was really difficult for Rustin. He was still really trying to reconcile how to live his life as a gay man with how to follow his life's work as an activist. He felt like a lot of the activist community was just waiting for him to mess up again. And even though he had always been willing to go to prison for his beliefs, and every time he undertook an act of civil disobedience, he was prepared to be arrested Now that he had a sex offense conviction on his record, being arrested again came with a much higher stake. He started to worry about his sexual orientation in a way that he hadn't before. In general, he became a lot more discreet, and he advised other gay activists to do the same. 
In the mid-1950s, Rustin was part of the American Friends Service Committee study that wrote Speak Truth to Power, which was a document urging the United States to take nonviolent responses to international conflicts. At his own request, because of his 1953 arrest, Rustin asked that his name be left off of it. At about this time, the civil rights movement in the, in the United States took another turn. We'll talk about what happened and how it led to Rustin being involved in it after a brief sponsor break. Get back to the life of fired Rustin. In 1954, the United States Supreme Court issued its ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education. This was the ruling that public school segregation was unconstitutional. We have a whole series on this ruling in the archive, which goes into a lot of detail about the civil rights movement and how it led to this ruling and what happened afterwards. So we're not going to rehash those details here. Basically, though, school segregation, unconstitutional. Although Rustin had been involved in equal rights for black Americans for much of his life, he hadn't had a lot of direct involvement in the movement between his advocacy for integrating the U.S. military in the late 1940s and the decision in Brown versus Board. But this Supreme Court decision and the backlash that it spawned were immediately compelling to him. In 1955, he started working with an organization called In Friendship to provide uh, support directly to black civil rights activists who were being targeted by white supremacists in the South. While the NAACP took on various legal aspects of uh, combating what was going on in the South, In Friendship offered direct assistance, including food, clothing and funds to people who were being affected by racism. On December 1st of 1955, Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama. This act of civil disobedience, which we have talked about at length on the podcast before, touched off the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, that is the subject of two episodes in our archive. Soon, Montgomery area civil rights leaders' houses were being bombed, and that includes the house of Martin Luther King Jr., in Friendship wanted to send somebody to help, and their most logical choice, in spite of his now-checkered past, was Bayard Rustin. Specifically, they thought it would be best to send somebody who already had lots of experience in nonviolent resistance and in organizing nonviolent movements for freedom. This is exactly what Rustin had spent so much time doing in the 40s, including studies and travels with followers of Mohandas Gandhi in India. Since he was black, it also meant that he was less likely to be seen as an outsider once he got there. Labor leader A. Philip Randolph connected Rustin to the leaders of the bus boycott. Once in Montgomery, Rustin wrote speeches and protest songs. And he also did a lot of practical work, arranging carpools and other transportation for black passengers who were protesting segregation by refusing to ride on segregated buses. And he advised everyone who was being indicted in connection with the bus boycott to dress in their Sunday best and go to the courthouse rather than waiting for their court date to arrive. His original plan had been to formally train the, bu- the bus boycott's leaders on Gandhian nonviolent resistance. But when he got once he got there, it became a lot more practical and effective to become part of the planning itself and to offer insights and strategies as situations arose. He also started to advise Martin Luther King on the direction of his civil rights work. 
He strenuously advocated a form of pacifism informed by both his Quaker beliefs and Gandhi's nonviolent resistance. As one example that kept being cited, the first time he went over to the King home, there were armed guards outside and, and numerous weapons in the house. And Bayard Russin was basically like, dude, you are leading a pacifist movement. You cannot have all these guns here. <laughs> that's not, that's not how it works. Uh, but it wasn't just that though. Like we're, we're going to talk about it more, but like that, that is the keystone example that a lot of people start with. And the nonviolence approach that became such a fundamental part of King's leadership was largely refined and directed by Rustin's influence. King had plenty of theory, but not a strong practical sense of how to translate the idea of nonviolence to a working social movement. Rustin's work with King was ongoing until King's assassination in 1968. Although from time to time, Rustin's sexual orientation and his past conviction led him to make himself scarce. Through the late 1950s, Rustin continued to work both within and outside of the United States. He helped King organize the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1956 and 1957. And in the late 1950s, he also went once again to Northern Africa, this time to protest French nuclear arms testing there. Uh, He also did lots of other work within the anti-nuclear movement as well. In 1957, he was invited to attend the National Congress of the Communist Party of the United States of America. He had not had any ties to communism since the 1940s, and he was invited as an outside observer. He attended, and this was apparently when he caught more serious attention of the FBI. Uh, the FBI maintained surveillance of Bayard Rustin for much of the 1960s, including wiretaps of his phone conversations with Martin Luther King Jr., can read a lot of this online at the FBI, thanks to the Freedom of Information Act. In 1960, Rustin's arrest in Pasadena really came back to haunt him. He and King were planning a protest outside the Democratic National Convention because no Democratic candidate had expressed a clear support of the civil rights movement. Democratic Representative Adam Clayton Powell Jr., was angry about this planned protest and trying to put an end to it. So he blackmailed Martin Luther King with the threat that he would tell the press about Rustin's arrest and also plant a false report that King and Rustin were lovers. Terrified at what such a scandal would do to the movement and to his own reputation, King canceled the protest and he convinced Rustin to resign from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. At the time, Rustin was devastated. But in 1987, he expressed a belief that his sexual orientation had not been a problem for King until it became a problem for the movement because of these outside sources that are jerks. For the next couple of years, much of Rustin's work was focused on nuclear disarmament and freedom movements in Africa and travel abroad. For a while, after this whole incident, the civil rights movement largely went on without him. But this was not the end of his work with King, and we will talk about it and the March on Washington after another brief sponsor break. It is probably safe to say that a lot of folks in the United States think of the civil rights movement in terms of things like segregation in schools and on buses, discrimination in employment and housing, and that sort of thing. But there was a whole additional layer to that, and that was a focus on economic issues. 
1963 March on Washington gets shortened to just the March on Washington, but it was really the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. And originally, the focus was largely on jobs. The idea for this march started with labor leader A. Philip Randolph in 1962. We talk a little bit about him in our podcast on the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Randolph recruited Rustin to help him plan a march that would draw attention to the economic issues that were running in parallel with desegregation in the South. At first, other civil rights organizations were really slow to join this march, though, and the War Resisters League had also declined to temporarily release Rustin from his duties to work on it. But in 1963, Commissioner Bull Connor of Birmingham, Alabama, turned fire hoses and police dogs on teenage protesters. The Ku Klux Klan began bombing activists' homes and the hotels where out-of-town activists were staying in Birmingham. With this, the march refined its focus to jobs and freedom, and it got a lot bigger. Martin Luther King became involved. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Congress of Racial Equality, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the National Urban League, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters would become the big six organizations who all came together for the march. Once again, Rustin's sexual orientation and his past arrest put a dent in his ability to take the helm, even though he was the one that wound up doing a whole lot of the planning. Roy Wilkins of the NAACP cited the risk involved with putting Rustin into such a position at such a high-profile event, afraid that having him in such a public-facing role would jeopardize the march and its respectability. In the end, A. Philip Randolph became the director and Rustin was his deputy. The bulk of their planning took just eight weeks of continual negotiations among all of these organizations and the people involved, many of which just did not see eye to eye. So much went into those eight weeks before the March on Washington. Apart from the speakers, the musicians, and all of those logistics, there were the simpler logistics of handling an expected quarter of a million people. I say simpler, that's not really correct. It's just a different logistics. Apart from the speakers, the musicians, and all of that, there was the simple logistics of handling an expected quarter of a million people. Instructions for protesters were exact, including that each person should plan to bring non-perishable food for both lunch and dinner. And the march itself had a lot of moving parts, including portable toilets, shuttle buses, first aid stations, just on and on the things you would need for a massive group of people. As the march got bigger and bigger, it also got less radical. Rustin's original plan had been for it to be a wide-ranging, active demonstration with lots of sit-ins and direct lobbying. But as it got bigger, its focus had to get broader and less militant in order for it to still work and for all of these people to still want to be involved with it. The whole time they were planning, the collection of organizers and civil rights organizations expected some kind of resistance from segregationists and others who wanted the march to fail. The biggest piece of that resistance came just three weeks before the march was to take place, when Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina read from the FBI file on Rustin on the Senate floor, including calling him a sexual deviant and effectively outing him to the entire nation. This time, though, the movement that had more than once pushed him out because of his sexual orientation and his behavior had his back. 
A. Philip Randolph publicly defended Reston and denounced Thurman's invasion of his privacy, which he pointed out pretty, pretty clearly was only being made in order to persecute him. In the end, of course, the march itself was huge, between 200,000 and 300,000 people. As the last of the formal remarks, King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. And after he concluded, A. Philip Randolph led the gathered crowd in a pledge to continue to fight for civil rights after they got home. The leaders of the march then met with President John F. Kennedy. Rustin was not one of those who did, but he and A. Philip Randolph were on the cover of Life magazine that September 6th. From there, Rustin really tried to get social movement organizations to build on the success of the march, to expand their focus to include other disenfranchised populations, and to try to work toward a solid plan of progress, rather than going from one individual dramatic protest to another. He also returned to his work with the War Resisters League and the Peace Movement, while also traveling and speaking on behalf of civil rights. In 1965, A. Philip Randolph resigned from the War Resisters League, and he announced that he and Bayard Rustin were launching the A. Philip Randolph Institute. The Institute's goal was to expand the impact of and strengthen the civil rights movement by building connections between labor and civil rights organizations. The same year, Rustin published From Protest to Politics, The Future of the Civil Rights Movement, which was a call to transition the civil rights movement from a series of protests against equality to a political movement. He saw the need for civil rights activists and anyone else who was the target of discrimination and inequality to band together to form a real political majority. In some ways, this uh, this document was more optimistic than his real thoughts on the subject, in part because he was writing it for a broad audience who he was hoping to get on board with this plan. However, in the years after the March on Washington, Rustin found himself on the receiving end of a fair amount of criticism from the very movement he had been so instrumental in shaping. A lot of this boiled down to his being seen as more moderate in a movement that was becoming more radical and for calling for building a political coalition rather than a true revolution. An influx of young activists saw him as a traitor for trying to work out compromises with legislators. Even though he had gone to prison for his opposition to World War II, people did not think he took a definitive enough stance against the Vietnam War, in part because he was trying to work within the system, which involved maintaining productive relationships with a lot of people who were in favor of the war. By the late 1960s, in part because he had not been uh, as demonstrative as people wanted against the Vietnam War, Rustin had few ties left to the peace movement. He was also at odds with the Black Power movement. There were definitely prominent Black Power leaders who did not agree with his philosophies at all. His calls to work together to build political power rather than focusing on individual issues and individual protests were increasingly unheeded. In the fall of 1971, having put himself under enormous pressure uh, to right the movements that he saw as floundering, Bayard Rustin had a massive heart attack. With an increasing number of disagreeing voices on how to change things in the United States, Rustin wound up focusing his efforts on foreign affairs and travel abroad after he recovered from his heart attack, working with an organization called Freedom House, and that was a bipartisan organization aimed to spread democracy internationally. He also advocated on behalf of refugees from numerous nations. 
In the late 70s and early 80s, the gay rights movement in the United States was moving more into the public sphere, and Bayard Rustin did as well. Part of this was because he'd met Walter Nagel in April of 1977, just after he turned 65. Nagel was 27, and it was love at first sight. It was Nagel's first long-term relationship and Rustin's most serious and steadfast of his life. With Nagel's encouragement, Rustin renewed ties with some of his old pacifist connections. He returned to an old love of scouring auctions to buy and and restore antique furniture as well. And he joined the gay rights movement, speaking, advocating against racism within the gay community, and lobbying New York Mayor Ed Koch for a gay and lesbian rights bill. In spite of having lived his life as a gay man, he declined a 1986 invitation to contribute to an anthology of gay men's writing, say that it would be dishonest to present himself as being at the forefront of that struggle. It was not, in fact, being gay that had caused him to be an activist. Because gay marriage wasn't yet legal, and New York's rent control laws meant that Rustin's death could render Nagel homeless without some kind of family connection to Rustin, they created that connection in the only way that was available to them at the time. Rustin legally adopted Nagel in 1982. Bayard Rustin continued to be politically active for the rest of his life, including working as an election observer and visiting refugee camps. On a trip to Haiti in 1987, he and Nagel both got sick. A doctor diagnosed them both with an intestinal parasite. In reality, Bayard Rustin had appendicitis. On Friday, August 21st of that year, it was determined that his appendix had ruptured and he had peritonitis. He died three days later at the age of 75. In 2010, the American Friends Service Committee Board restored Rustin's name to the authors of Speak Truth to Power. He was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama in 2013. That is Byron Rustin. A lot of people speculate about how his life would have been different if he had been born a little later. Uh, There are, in the whole wake of that Pasadena sex crime charge, um, he did some soul searching that was like, yeah, even though I've never really hidden who I, who I am, the fact that society causes me to, to keep this secret is is definitely a, a factor on like how I have conducted myself. Yeah. Anyway, uh, even though that was like almost 8,000 words on Bayard Rustin spread out over two episodes, there are so many things that he did that we did not touch on at all. <laughs> That's always the case anytime we do a fascinating person's life, though. You just, you can't include every single thing. No, and he it. just never stopped. Like, that was part of it. <laughs> and all of these things that he were doing, he was doing were, were important. It's like, okay, well, uh, in this big gap of time between the, uh, between the Montgomery bus boycott and the March on Washington, he was doing all of this anti-war protesting, <laughs> like all of this travel abroad and all of this encouraging, uh, African nations to nonviolently rise up against, uh, uh, against colonial governments, uh, like it was just ongoing constantly. Uh, and so, I mean, he, he was less active in the rest of his life, but he still like was, was 
touring and speaking and being an election observer and all that, even until the very end. <sighs> do you have a little bit of listener mail for us to wrap up with? I do. This is from Diana. Diana says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I just finished your podcast on the eruption of Eldfell on Hamey. It's a piece of history I've actually heard a lot about before, but I always enjoy hearing the story retold. I'm a geologist, and in 2010, I went to Iceland for a geology class trip. Among other things, we visited Hamey and hiked up Eldfell. What was so amazing to me was that Eldfell is still very hot. Rocks are incredibly good insulators, and in 2010, if you dug down just an inch or two, you could boil water. One student melted part of his hiking boot. If you think you had trouble with Icelandic pronunciations, you should look up newscasters trying to say Eyjafjallajökull, which is a volcano that started erupting in March of 2010 and disrupted air travel across Europe for weeks. CNN even did a whole story about the name. Many Icelandic uh, letters look the same as the English alphabet, but they often have different pronunciations, especially for combinations of letters. You really have to think of it as a whole new alphabet. I would add just one thing to your mention of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. In addition to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, there is also a hot spot beneath Iceland, which increases the amount of volcanism to produce rocks. Without the addition of the hotspot volcanism, it is unlikely that Iceland would break the surface of the ocean. A a hotspot is an area of volcanism that can occur anywhere in a tectonic plate. The Hawaiian Islands, for example, were created by a hotspot. Movement of the tectonic plate over the hotspot creates the chain of islands. We don't yet know what causes hotspots to occur or why they occur where they do. Thanks for a great podcast, Diana. Thank you, Diana, for writing in. I have, in fact, seen that video. It is hilarious. <laughs> for several reasons. One is that, like, so many of the pronunciations are so incongruous from one another. And then the other thing is, I'm pretty sure this is the video that I'm thinking of. I've watched several videos of people trying to say the thing. I'm going to try to say again. Because uh, uh, I keep transposing two of the syllables when I try to say it. And I also freely admit, I cannot make the noise that is two L's at the end of a word in Icelandic. Like, I can't do it. I have tried a lot. Uh, so, uh, I think it's this video where that they then called someone like the Icelandic consulate and were was like, how do you say this? Um, and the the final pronunciation they had basically had the end of it sounded like yogurt, which is not, it's also not right. So it was like, there's 27 different weird, bizarre ways people try to say Eja Fietla Yoko. There we go. Correct. Good girl. Mostly, except for the L part, which I, I, I can't do it. I can't do the L's at the end. Uh, and then they're like, and this is how it really is. And then that one is also wrong. It's so oh, funny. Oh no. Yeah. Uh, I also have a refrigerator magnet on my refrigerator that we bought that it, like it says, uh, AF yet yeah, though, AF is easy to say. And then it like sounds it out in syllables, except the last syllable rendered on this magnet is definitely not how it sounds. <laughs> so anyway, uh, thank you everyone who is from Iceland for putting up with the fact that I cannot make that sound that all of these volcanoes really end with. Um, we did walk around on Eldville a little bit while I was there. We did not dig down in there. Our plan was to go all the way to the top, but we were there really early in the uh, spring season and it appeared that some of the path that goes up to the top had been kind of covered over by some sliding volcanic debris. 
uh, and we ma- we turned up what we thought was the path, but it was really just the the place where everyone had turned, thinking they could get up that way. Aha! <laughs> and then it, it became clear that we had been led astray, and we had to catch our ferry back to the mainland. So we didn't we didn't get to try again, but we did walk around on there. Did you find it, it warm? Interesting. Uh, I didn't dig down into it, but I kind of wish I had. So. If you had reached down and touched the ground, though, it did not still feel warm, or did it? Or do you know? Well, the like the the loose, scattered surface of the ground uh-huh. did not feel warm. But uh, I I can't remember whether we said this that uh, the the primary source of heat and hot water in Haiti now is is residual cooling from that eruption. Like it has become the the heating source. Um, and when I first heard about that, I thought. Isn't that a whole lot of work to put into something that is eventually going to cool off? It's not going to cool off for a really long time. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you, Diana. And if you would like to write to us, we're a history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash MissedInHistory. Uh, you, oh, we also have an Instagram, yeah. History for that too. If you would like to come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, put the word Civil Rights Movement in the search bar, you will find lots of different articles about various aspects of the Civil Rights Movement. And then you'd also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. You can find show notes uh, of every episode that Holly and I have worked on together and an archive of every episode that has existed ever in the show notes for this episode. Um, we will have some links to some of the recordings of Bayard Rustin. Uh, singing, and we'll have links to his FBI file. <laughs> the documents from that, they are publicly available. And maybe I'll also link to the video of the guy from Iceland saying AF yet your local correctly. <laughs> uh, which I think this time, when 99% of our listeners have stopped listening, I said it the best of all the times that yeah. I've Yeah! So, you can uh, do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.